Welcome to Digitally Creative. I'm your host, Vincent Ferrari, and joining me this week, he is the master of Kickstarter and a really good machinist to boot, the one and only AJ Huff. What's going on, AJ? How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Good, good. So I heard about you for the first time when uh, Tom, the Infinite Craftsman, was on Because We Make, and I ended up getting to know you that way and following your stuff and watching you build products like I've never seen before. Um, it's pretty. It's been pretty cool watching you grow and grow and grow. And then recently, you came up with a really cool design for a carabiner that if you climb with, you'll probably die. But <laughs> it's really cool for holding your your keychain, your keys rather. Um, it's been fun watching you grow and expand, and just in the time I've known you, so it's just been awesome. So I should probably give you a chance to talk because I'm being really rude right now. But welcome to the show. <laughs> well, thank you. It's good. It's good being here. Um, it is, I, you, when Tom talked about you, and I guess this is a good place to start because you just finished one, but when Tom talked about you, he kind of gave us the impression that you were like the, the master of Kickstarter, like maybe not the master master, but a guy who knows how to do a Kickstarter campaign. And it's funny because right after Tom was on, you started getting ready to do the one for the don't climb the no climbing carabiner. And it was amazing watching you go with this thing. Like I could see, and you know, I know you helped him with the frog pod one. So let's start there. How did you get to know Kickstarter as well as you do? Um, and kind of turn it into something where a lot of people put something up and it just struggles, but you seem to, you seem to have it somewhat figured out. So how did you get to that point? Cause that's a oddly specific skill to have. Yeah. I, I should start by saying with Tom's Kickstarter, before I had launched the Not For Climbing Kickstarter, before mm -hmm. Tom had launched his Kickstarter, I think my biggest Kickstarter to date was about $6,000. Okay. And then I helped Tom with his, and it went to like $30,000. $33,000. So it was ridiculous to watch. Yeah, he, he blew me away. Um, <laughs> so he was kind of the master of Kickstarter there. <laughs> but, but before that, so going back, I've just... I've done several of them. Mm -hmm. My design, the everything started with our very first Kickstarter that was for a pen that we called the Spire pen. It was 3d printed out of stainless steel from, from Shapeways, And it did fine. I think we made like 1700 bucks on Kickstarter, which means that we lost like a hundred bucks for the whole campaign. It wasn't exactly <laughs> profitable, uh, but we learned a lot. And from there I went on to do, a Kickstarter for a, a spinning top, like a toy top that we called the arch top. And that made about 3,000, 3,600, something like that. I did one for a wallet that did not get funded, uh, which was a pretty big learning lesson in itself. And then after that, I had the parametric pry bar, which did pretty well. That did about $6,000 if I remember right. That's a, that's a wild little thing unto itself, by the way, to have something that you're manufacturing for people that's parametric. Like that was, that's kind of a risky move right then and there. Like I'm kind of surprised. I'm kind of surprised you took that leap. <laughs> One of my theories in, in both business and also like designing products is to do mm -hmm. things that other people can't or won't do. Mm -hmm. And a big shop 
can't handle something like the parametric pry bar. And to right. take a step back here, the parametric pry bar is a, a pry bar. It's a tool like you'd stick in your pocket that to you know pry things apart or scrape paint or open a package. But I gave customers the ability to do some pretty extreme customization on it. The customer got to choose the length, the width, the height, and the curvature on the sides of it. And I would machine it custom to their, you know, to the choices that they had. So every single one that I made for customer was completely unique from, from all of the other ones. Which is like you said, utter insanity. Like I can, you can't do that at scale. Right. Um, were you, so knowing that you can't do that on scale, were you just not expecting it to be massive and you were just going to do something really cool? Like, I mean, if you know some, what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is if you know something is hard to do at scale for like a larger shop, how did you expect you to be able to do it on a smaller scale if it blew up? So the, the truth is it is possible to do it on scale. No, okay. no sane machine shop would take on that, that project. <laughs> but okay. when you design, when you design your process from the ground up to be able to facilitate that much customization, mm-hmm. it's, it's possible. Okay. But if you are a traditional machine shop where you're expecting traditional parts, like you're, you're already invested in, in that system. And mm-hmm. so switching over to something that's parametric would be really difficult for you. Gotcha. Okay. So it was just, it was just, you, you were willing to kind of set up with the expectation that nothing was going to be fixed. Everything had to be a variable going from the beginning. And that's the only way you were able to do it then. Yes. Got it. Okay. Yeah, because that sounds like it's almost sounds contradictory. It's like, yeah, they can't do this at scale, but I'm selling these and I want to make money with them. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> okay. No, that's I, I, I like I like the product you sell. I actually had um I was telling I forgot who I was telling. I might have actually said this on because we make, but I had a prototype of the not for climbing carabiner. And it was before you had kind of settled on the actual design. You sent me one and I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, this is really cool. Like, even though it didn't, I know it didn't work as you expected to, like the design needed just a couple more tweaks before it was ready. Um, I have the final one, obviously, also. I have a final one and I have the um, the the sample one. And both of them are just like, the even the evolution from one to the other was pretty impressive. And I liked how you documented your process of figuring out the way it should flex and the way it should snap shut and the, the satisfaction of that click when you close it all on your YouTube channel as you started to ease out of the day job into full time. I thought that was a really cool idea too, to kind of take us along on the journey before you started the Kickstarter. Is that, is that something you're going to keep doing? I mean, I know you kind of slowed down the YouTube production during, um, during the Kickstarter because it was just so much going on and so much production, but are you planning on bringing that back when you, because I know you're planning on another Kickstarter for next year. Is that going to be, part of the process too, where we come along for the ride up until you launch it or? Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I love doing the YouTube stuff. I think it adds, it adds a lot of value and like interest to your, your product. It makes the, it, it makes the whole buy-in experience better when you know everything that went into designing the product and you know what to look for. And, um, I, and I enjoy making the videos. Mm-hmm. I, I did fall behind on on the videos. I do have an editor working for me now, which has oh, made it good. much, much easier. And like he kind of had a backlog that he just finished working through. And so now that we're caught up, hopefully the, the temple will go up a little bit here. <laughs> it's but. 
the videos are the videos are interesting though because I'm not a machinist. I mean, I know this is gonna shock everybody, but I'm not a machinist. But I love watching I love watching you problem solve as things you know aren't working. When you were making the meeple, and you were getting the cutoff saw to kind of you know you machine them to getting the cutoff saw to cut, and it was like oh that's not gonna work. Oh that's not gonna work. Well that didn't work. And the transparency of showing people when your processes fail as opposed to only showing your successes, it was pretty impressive. Like it's very, very open of you. Uh, I, it's, I don't know. It's almost like very makery <laughs> more than producty. Yeah. It's very make my, my theory is my theory with my YouTube videos is that like, I, I am not an expert and mm -hmm. yeah, I know a little bit of machining cause I've, I've played with it for a couple years and like, I know some really good machinists who've taught me some stuff, but I'm, I'm not a great machinist. I'm not a great mm -hmm. business person. And so me sitting here trying to teach a class in like, you know, this is how you run a manufacturing business would be, would be fruitless. There's, there's no point. I don't have that skill, but what right. I can do is I can show you what I've done and then people can watch that and go, okay, that was a good idea. I'm going to do that. Or, oh, that was a terrible idea. I'm not going to do it that <laughs> way. Have you had, what was your, what was your big, terrible idea? Like, oh, wow. I don't, I can't believe I thought that was actually going to work. You must have one in your back pocket where you go, I still can't believe I tried that. <laughs> um, let's see the, this kind of goes back a few years, but the, the buttress wallet Kickstarter mm -hmm. was a, a pretty good example of how not to do things. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that like, I didn't consult with other people. I didn't go get impressions of what other people thought of the wallet. I didn't take the time to get our marketing together. I just kind of threw together a wallet and I did have someone I was working with who was a leather worker who knew the leather. So like the product itself was high quality, but it was my design, which wasn't, which wasn't great. And the marketing wasn't great. And I just expected it to go on Kickstarter and be fine. Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't put the the preparation work in. It was it was a I'm I've I, you had it on your um I only saw it on your your Etsy shop yes um as a clearance item but it's beautiful like it's a beautifully simple wallet I'm surprised you know that's got to surprise you at least a little bit where you go I can't believe this like I really thought this was going to be a good one like does it do you get attached to your stuff or do you just like when something doesn't work you just go all right on to the next one let's go I almost have the problem of not being attached to it enough. And this Ooh. is kind of the maker Ooh. ethos. Ooh. Where... Ooh, tell me more. Cause this is, this is a rare thing to hear someone say. So go ahead. Let's hear this. Uh, I, no, I think if you, you've talked to enough makers that you're probably familiar with this. I, I like designing the thing. I like making the thing. And once that thing has become a reality, it's really easy for me to go, okay, what's the new thing I'm going to do? Like what, mm. what am I going to make next? Gotcha. Uh, and I have a hard time with the like ongoing maintenance that a product requires. Mm -hmm. That's hmm. So normally, 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 the when I hear people refer to a problem, like because of the people I've talked to, when I hear them talk about a problem, is that they tend to treat their thing like it's too precious. So it was in. It's interesting to hear you say that once it's once you've sorted out. I guess you're more into the production and problem solving in the creation of the item than you are of the actual having the item so once you've solved all the problems and you can produce the item it's like well the part that i'm interested is in done like you i almost feel like you'd be happier handing it off at that point and telling someone okay this is how you make it these are all the parameters this is the machine you need do it for me 
I'm ready to go on to the next one. Yeah. And in <laughs> fact, that's a, a, a change that I'm incorporating in my business model as of like right now with this next Kickstarter that I'm doing mm-hmm. is I, I've learned with the carabiner Kickstarter, which took me just, you know, hundreds of hours of, of work to get those carabiners done. Sure. And they're not actually shipped yet. That'll be happening probably this week here. But the the amount of time that I spent doing that production, which there's other people who are really, really good at production machining work. They have better mm-hmm. equipment. They just have more experience and more time for it. Um, I, I do not have that same equipment. I do not have that same skill set. So why am I doing the production work? I need to be passing off that production to the experts so that I can focus on the next product. I can focus on on prototyping. I can focus on you know sketching out ideas and iterating through different designs to figure out what works best. I like that your I like that your the the name of your company is Design the Everything, and that's where your mind and your heart really are. It's the designing and prototyping phase, the part of the the early stages of the product rather than the, Oh, we're booming. Let's just produce, produce, produce. Like it just, it doesn't see, I'm, I'm, the more I talk to you, the more I'm realizing like, Oh wow, this is really just not his thing. Like he doesn't want to do this. He wants to be the designer. He wants to be the prototyper. He wants to be the problem solver. It's kind of cool to see actually. Most people have trouble admitting. Most people have trouble admitting that they don't want to just produce, 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 become a manufacturer. Like I, I, even I get into that trap. It's like, no, I like, I like coming up with the, you know, cool combinations of wood and this, that, and the third. And I, I, but I really don't like the after part. Like sometimes I just want to make it and I wish I had someone to just take it, ship it, package it, all that stuff, like do all that stuff for me. So I I guess, I guess I understand it. That's kind of cool actually. And it's not that I don't like the production phase. Uh, I, it's that it takes away from what you do like to do the most. Yes. It's the wrong. And, it's the wrong bal- end of the balance scale for you. Correct. Yeah. Well. I. I am one person. I'm a one person shop, mm-hmm. and you know, like this is how I'm making my living right now, or how I'm trying to. I mean, right now, design to everything is still rapidly losing money, which will hopefully change next year. But the. I, in order to to make the amount of money that I need to make to support me and the family, I need to launch. X amount of products per year and maintain them. Mm-hmm. And if I am spending all of my time just focused on producing the last thing, I'm not working on the next thing, sure, which is going to slow down my tempo. I did when you were on. Um, it's weird. As we're recording this, it is um, December fifth, and two days ago, AJ was on the Makeshift podcast, which I had no idea about. So it's kind of funny. Like I had a little bit of a um, little bit of guest research kind of brought out to me, but. You also mentioned earlier that you are thinking about, as far as the production end of it, farming that out to other people to handle it once you've done the design, figured out the hurdles, and kind of gotten the design down. Um, Let's take a step back a little bit. And how did you get into product design and kind of, I mean, I don't don't like calling it invention because invention has weird connotations of a crazy old man in a basement just, you know, with a colander on his head doing wild things. But how did you get into product design and development? And then how did it evolve from there into actually producing on a scale that could make a product sellable for you? All right. So if we want to go way, way, way back. All the way back. (laughs) All the way back. As a kid, you know, I was the kind of kid that you would expect to grow up into a maker, except, you know, that term wasn't quite around yet. 
you know, I, when I was, I don't know, probably 12 or so, I built a mm-hmm. trebuchet in my backyard. Nice. Um, I still remember getting in trouble for throwing bricks into my neighbor's yard. <laughs> <laughs> I and, love it. Uh, eventually, eventually I, you know, I would, I would sit in school and I had a notebook and I would, you know, do drawings of things that I wanted to make. And one of the, the problems I have is my, my muscle control, my fine mu- muscle control in my hands is, is not very good. Um, I've always struggled with, with handwriting. Um, I was in uh, occupational therapy for my handwriting for, for years, trying to get oh, wow. that better. And it, I mean, it's still something that, that I struggle with. And that was when I was first introduced to CAD. And it was a way for me to start you know, designing the things that I wanted to make in a way that didn't depend on, you know, my fun, fine muscle control, be able to, to draw them out. And so I, you know, first kind of started getting into CAD and, you know, went through high school and, you know, learned about engineering. And so I went off to, to college to get an engineering degree. Um, and when I was there, I, um, met a roommate of mine, uh, who is a, a, one of my best friends to this day, Scott Ruby. And we were, you know, sitting there in, in, in our room and he was looking at a Kickstarter. You know, this is back when Kickstarter was basically brand new. Right. And he, he showed me this pen Kickstarter. I believe it was for one of the tactile turn pens. It's a, a big, um, like EDC pen company. And this pen on Kickstarter made like $300,000. <laughs> and we went, holy crap, we can make a pen for $300,000. That sounds awesome. <laughs> And that's kind of how design everything started is we, is we went, okay, we want to make a pen. And so I came up with a, with a design and we, um, you know, we went to Shapeways to get them 3d printed. They came out pretty well, threw it up on Kickstarter. And like I said, it did fine. And, but we did not hit $300,000. And so we went, okay, we can do better. And we kind of snowballed from there. Um, and Scott was a, a member of Design to Everything for a while. He did step away to do his own freelancing thing, but um, that's that's really how I got started. It, Scott was more interested in the products than I was. I was just interested in making things. But mm. that kind of like that that passion for the the product design grew on me over time. It's it's kind of cool that you started with Shapeways for um, making stuff like that because I was using Shapeways to make custom jewelry because they could do a lot of um they could do a lot of really cool plated stuff and all you'd have to do is give them an obj file and the next thing you know they're giving you um like they could even work in fine metals the way they center stuff to make you know fine metal stuff 3d printed it's kind of wild actually the process they use it's yeah it's it's don't you feel like i mean maybe to an extent you feel like you've unlocked a superpower when you discover like send cut send and shape ways and stuff it's like Oh, I can literally, as long as I can design it, I can get this made. Like, that's kind of cool. And now even like um, you can even get PCBs from like PCB way. And now they're doing injection molding and custom CNC work. It's like if you can design a thing now, you almost don't need to have machines to make anything anymore. You just need to know how to design the stuff effectively and be willing to eat it a little bit if you screw up the design and wait a little while for a second version of it. But. Well, that's kind of a uh, a debate that I had with myself. Okay, is I, I was thinking about you know what 
what would I do differently for design the everything? Like if I was starting over, how, how would I have done it differently? And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have this nice uh, Tormach 1100 MX right behind me. And, you know, it is a super fun machine. It, it's very capable. But should I have actually bought that? And I think the answer is probably not because, mm. um, you know, I have, I have machine payments on this thing and they're not, they're not small. I mean, it's, um, like a significant part of my mortgage is about the same as that. And oh, wow. What if I had taken that same amount of money and invested it just like, what if I had taken that same amount of money and used it to send off my designs to people like Shapeways and Zometry and Proto Labs and had other people make the parts for me. Would I be farther along than I am now by, you know, like am I actually even saving money by having this machine? In your heart of in your heart of hearts, what do you think the answer to that question is? I would do exactly the same thing again because I enjoy this stuff. So right. it maybe isn't the right fiscally, but would I be in the same place or would I have lost the the passion for it if I wasn't doing it myself? It's, I think that's, I think that's probably the answer that if you're buying the machine, not buying the machine would have always been a regret. You would have gotten to the point where it's like, Oh, this is cool. I could get anything, but man, I wish I had the machine. Cause then I could just go out and try to make it myself or at least make the first yeah. few versions myself. Like I think your new, the new hybrid model that you're thinking about for the next Kickstarter, I think that's probably a model that a lot of people should probably follow. Whereas the large scale production is done elsewhere. You're doing the, the prototyping and the rapid, the rapid iteration, which that's the one thing you can't do when you're doing mail away services, like send cut, send as good as they are, are not fast. I mean, they are, it's a couple of days, it's a couple of days for them to start. And then it's a couple of days to get to, you're looking at basically a week every time you make an iteration. Yeah which that takes all the rap, the rapidity out of it, which kind of ruins the fun of doing it. So I think you're probably right. I think you probably needed the machine, maybe a smaller machine, but you needed the machine. Um, <laughs> you needed the machine. You needed to be able to, because your designs also are like even the carabiner, your designs are a little bit out of the box. So you couldn't necessarily go there and send it to them and go, okay, this is good. No, I want to make a change. Oh, now I'm going to make a change. I'm gonna... You have to make fine adjustments to it. And every time you make a fine adjustment to have to wait a week, it would have taken you a year to come up with that design. So. That's true. And, and I probably wouldn't have gone through that many iterations. I would have probably stopped at an earlier point with a, mm. a, a less good carabiner. Well, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. You wouldn't have had the version that you ended up super happy with the version, the final version for customers that you started producing. I do like, I do like when you were talking on um, makeshift, you were talking about titanium too, and how working with titanium is a pain and it was kind of cool. It's kind of cool to hear like, that's where these services can really fit in for people like us. It's like, oh yeah, you guys can handle titanium. That's good. Cause I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> I don't want to deal with any of that. I'm, I I in, I've I've enjoyed I've enjoyed watching you talk on your YouTube channel about the business itself about the product design process. I've been enjoying. It just seems like you're you're opening a window into the side of the business that a lot of us don't get to see. I mean, I I make stuff also, but I don't make the stuff you make. And if I just saw this really cool polished thing on Kickstarter with you know cool videos and cool product shots, I'd be like, oh, this is awesome. He just made a thing, but. 
seeing what went into it and then seeing the Kickstarter launch, like there was a personal investment there. And I think that's a, that's a killer strategy for you. <laughs> you yeah. Get everybody roped in and brought on board. You have, you have a Patreon that's very interesting. You don't you. do, you don't do Patreon the way other people do Patreon. Um, you have the sticker of the month club and you have the prototype of the month club, which I think is a really neat idea. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about what those are and how you use those and what, if they're helping you push your design sensibilities a little bit, or at least helping you play and experiment a little bit. Yeah. And I should add the sticker of the month club is the free sticker of the month club. You do not have to be a Patreon member for that. The Mm -hmm. Patreon does help fund it. Sure. The free the free sticker of the month club is exactly what it sounds like. Every month you get a sticker and a newsletter. It, and really the sticker is an excuse to make my newsletter exciting. And Can I just say by the way, your it. your newsletter is great. I'm I'm just going to say it out. Your newsletter is great. It it really is. It's like it's not it's like 2 to 3 pages every month and there's no fluff, there's no filler, there's no bullshit in the whole thing. Like it's just it's a it's really it's a good read. Like I kind of Normally when I get stuff like that, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. This is great. And I put it aside, but I always read yours. I take the sticker, I put it in my envelope of maker stuff, but the newsletter stays out on my desk until I get a chance to read it because I want a proper chance to read it. So it's, it's good stuff. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad you appreciate it. And I mean, <laughs> I, I, I like stickers um, mm-hmm. and it's a good excuse for me to pay some independent artist to design a custom sticker for me. It mm-hmm. helps me you know, support independent artists that I would never have talked to before. I would have never been able to, you know, support them and what they're doing. And I get a cool sticker out of it and I get to send a sticker to, you know, a hundred of my friends. So. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. I also like that you get sponsors for the newsletter, which I think is great. I think that's an interesting business model too, to approach a newsletter and say, approach a business and say, Hey, look, I have this group of people that are engaged. They want to read this stuff that I write. Let's put your brand in it, you know, and you put QR codes at the bottom of it. Like it's, it's just really well done. I, I thought it was a clever idea. I, that's one of the reasons I kicked in the three bucks a month to support you because I was like, this is just a clever idea. Like it just needs to be supported. So, and then you do the, the prototype of the month club, which is Correct. way more, which is a way more involved thing. So that means you're coming up with something every single month to send out to however many people are on that list. That's gotta be terrifying sometimes. <laughs> it, it is. And it's, um, not the, the least stressful thing I do. <laughs> it is, it's always, it's always looming there, you know, at mm-hmm. least or at most 30 days in the future. Okay. Got to send another one of those. It, it helps that the, the group of Patreons that are supporting me at that level are super understanding and, and super kind and, like I did not get one out last month because mm-hmm. I was busy with the the Kickstarter and I just kept trying to get to it and I ran into problems with the the product I was working on and I didn't get it out in time so I had to do a a double box this month and I you know I went to my Patreons and made a post I was like I'm so sorry and you know I can't believe that I didn't get this done and and everyone was like yeah that's fine that's cool I'll see you next <laughs> month like everyone was super supportive. You know, they couldn't have cared less that I, you know, hadn't gotten that month down. So that, that was really good. The, but the big thing about that box is, you know, one of the, one of the rules, one of the the covenants is if you sign up for that, that tier, you have to give me product feedback. Mm. 
Okay. So it, it it's not it's not a loot box where every month you get some random thing. It's a you know help me out by giving me feedback on these things that that I want to make. Sure. And I actually, when you sent me the prototype for the carabiner, um, by the way, AJ knows me so well that he sent me a prototype in purple. Like that's how good AJ knows me at this point. But um, when you sent it to me and I, I opened it the first time, um, I don't think I'm talking out of school when I say this, but when I opened it for the first time, I was playing around with it. And the only thing I noticed was it didn't like properly click shut. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, he was really nice to send this to me. What do I do? Like, do I tell him that it doesn't click shut or do I just, am I just grateful that he sent it to me? So I actually, I think I said something to the effect of, look, I don't want to be an asshole and I appreciate that you sent me a beautiful free thing, but I noticed that it doesn't really click shut the right way. And you're like, oh yeah, I know we're fixing that, but I just, you know, thanks for telling me though. I'm like, oh, thank God. Cause I don't know, like, I don't know how to, I feel bad giving feedback on a gift. Like I didn't know if that was the final version or if that was like, you know, a prototype. Like I didn't know what I was getting and you were so cool about it. You're like, Oh yeah, no, I know it's, it's not perfect. But other than that, what else do you think? I was like, no, it's freaking amazing. Like I have my second house key is on that one. And my first house key is on the first one. I, the main one that I have. So. Yeah, I I send things to people because I want their feedback. Mm-hmm. You know, I I am one person. I have one set of eyes. I have one opinion, mm-hmm. and you need the other people to find things that 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 I would miss. Sure. Um, for example, I found out that with my old design, in some circumstances, with some people, they had issues with it popping open because there wasn't any way. There was no how do I word this. Basically, if you pulled it hard, it, it could pop open. There was no... Oh, right. It would fle- um, probably flex enough. There was no rigidity yeah. on the leg. It would just bend a little bit and pop. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. You so really did... Go- sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, sorry. I was just saying... So I was able to go in and add a little hook shape that at least kept uh-huh. it stable in that one direction. You really did. It was It was amazing... What what a difference those little the little supports that you put in the middle between the two outer edges, just that little bit of more metal made it more satisfying to use. It made it more rigid. It didn't like you like didn't pop open or it didn't feel like as loose almost. It's it's amazing. I this is where this is where you know I watch someone like you and I'm just like I never would have thought of that. Like I can't think like I would have made it solid up until the bottom. And then maybe let it flex there, but then it probably could have warped back and forth. Like, I don't know that I would have come up with such an elegant solution to kind of skeletonize it a little bit. Like, it was just a really cool way to fix that problem. Um, Do you have any kind of degree or formal education in, like, material sciences at all? Or is it just stuff that you've learned from doing? Yeah, so I'm an engineer by trade. I have a, a degree from Purdue University in and actually mechanical engineering technology, which is a little bit different than mechanical engineering, but that's okay. neither here nor there. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, and I, and I worked as a mechanical engineer for a number of years. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that. Um, what was that like? What did you do? Um, who uh, You don't have to tell us who you worked for, but what kind of work were you doing in that position? So for my first job out of school, I worked for a company called uh, Universal Blower Pack. And <laughs> okay. they made... 
basically very large, high-volume compressors that okay. ran at a low pressure. So uh, the there was kind of a, a legal definition at 15 PSI, and so everything we did was under 15 PSI. Okay. But it could be like 3,000, 5,000 uh, cubic feet per, per minute, which for oh, wow. context, my five-horsepower air compressor is about 11 cubic feet per minute. <laughs> That's um, incredible. So that's a lot of CFMs. It's a lot of air. Um, And most of them got used in the wastewater treatment industry uh, Hmm. of all places. They used them to aerate the, uh, the sludge is the technical term. Okay. Um, Which I don't know, isn't most glamorous, but it it was kind of cool. Yeah. My, you know, some of my designs are um, like, for example, my compressors that I designed are running the wastewater treatment uh, center on Guam. Like the entire island is from units that I've, I've designed. So nice. I don't know. It's not something you'd expect <laughs> to do ever in a, as a career, but it, it's kind of cool. It pays the bills. <laughs> it pays the bills, yeah. It pays the bills. I, and that was actually a, a very educational job for me because mm-hmm. a lot of the all of the units were were kind of semi custom. They were all they were all modular, which is you know fairly similar to what I do with like the parametric pry bar. Mm. Okay. And it, I was able to get that job because I had a lot of experience with the parametric design kind of stuff. But then it I was able to kind of develop that more at that job with all of the you know kind of semi custom stuff. Mm-hmm. But then, let's see, after that, I got a call from a, an old boss of mine. Uh, I had a, a summer job working at this, um, this factory, I guess would be the term, that made uh, checkout stand equipment. So basically, the thing that holds up the credit card reader or you know monitor stands, that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, I worked there as a summer job in high school. And, you know, then went off to, to college and I, I got a call from my old boss that was like, hey, my uh, engineer has had some health problems. Do you want to come come work for me? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so I went back there to that same company and designed, you know, checkout stand equipment. Wow. And again, it's one of those it, it, like these companies are everywhere. These little tiny companies, you know, there was oh, yeah. I think, 10 of us there total. But you know, we made all of the checkout stand equipment for like Meyer and Whole Foods, um, uh, just a bunch of gas stations. There's a whole laundry list of, of places that we made their their checkout stand equipment. Um, but it's just, you know, some little company in Noblesville with 10 people in a you know fairly big building. And it's, that's funny, by the way, because it's not just even in the um, even in the retail space, like if you need like point of sale for a store or like retail display stuff for a store. There are only so many companies that do it. And when you start looking into, you know, getting, we had to, at my former company, we had to get something produced for the kiosks that we worked with. Mm -hmm. And there was literally one company and everyone was like, yeah, you got to call these guys. These are the guys that do that. These notice the way they said that too. These are the guys that do this. Like, it's like not anyone, yeah, you get somebody else to do it, but these are the guys that do this. Like, that's their thing. It's kind of wild how that you shake out your own niche in a, in a place like that. Yep. And in that company, their, their niche was custom large scale installations. Mm-hmm. So there were, there were bigger companies than us that had standard products where right. if you could fit their standard product, that was great. They were, mm-hmm. you know, 
cheaper than us. They were faster because they were a bigger company. But if you needed something custom made and if you needed it to be, you know, all steel, bulletproof, welded construction, you came to us. And that's why we got, you know, Walmart and Whole Foods because they needed something custom that would last forever. But, you know, Jiffy Lube or whatever, they can just do an off the shelf unit. That's crazy. So you you have you have this gig. I'm, this was the last one you had before you decided to go full time. So you're right. you're doing this you're doing this gig. You're doing it. You're making decent money. You have a family. Everything's going along. What sparks in you where you go? I really want to do more than this. Like what what clicks in your head? What's the process? Right? What was the conversation with your wife like? Like how did that go down? And then. You know, I know you just recently finally kind of closed the door on the day job, but how is that process? How did it come about and how did it, how has it been up until this point? So there were kind of a lot of things that happened at the same time that made it possible. So first mm-hmm. of all, there was a, a longstanding foundation, like design the everything has been around, I don't know, like eight years or something at this point in various forms and, you know, kind of slowly evolving. Um, And so I I, I built up that foundation, you know, my social media presence was getting bigger. Like there was, I I could put stuff online and sell them. I had some income from particularly the aluminum trays, which at the time I was selling like a lot of, like a surprising Mm -hmm. number of, which the sales of those are now gone, which is sad. But at the time they, they were paying for a lot of things. And so like, you know, I was starting to get a little bit more comfortable. And then we decided to move, you know, the, we found out that our house, which we had bought for 180 was now worth about 360,000. It, it doubled in value on us. And wow. we were like, huh, I wonder, I wonder if we can do anything with that. So we started looking at houses <laughs> and we found this place, which is not in the middle of nowhere, but it's uh, not near anything. And the value on this house had, had not risen like our old house. And um, even though this house was much nicer and it came with this nice 2000 square foot shop. Sure. Um, and so we, we sold that house, we moved into this one and by basically we were able to keep my more, our mortgage payment the same, move into a much nicer place. And I was able to bank about a year's worth of salary that I could use to, to start design the everything. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. It's all starting to come and, together now. Yeah. So that, that move is kind of what, what made it possible. And, you know, I took a little while after the move so we could get settled in and mm-hmm. um and and i i slowly transitioned out of my day job to make it easier on both me and also um my my job because i like that job it was a good job i sure. liked my boss i liked the company so i like over the course of three months i you know went part-time and you know three days a week then two days a week then one day a week before leaving all the way the slow um, fade. <laughs> the slow fade. But really, it was the crazy house market and the fact that houses in Indianapolis rose in value far more than they did here in Muncie. Sure. Sure. We did um, the same thing with, with my house. When we sold my house, we made... Oh, it was the best 10-year investment I've ever made yeah. in my life. Like It's like, how, how is that 10... How Imagine if we'd kept it for 20 
you know, imagine, I mean, obviously we didn't choose to sell just out of nowhere. Other things happened, but it is kind of crazy when you look 10 years down the road and you've paid off X amount into it and you have so much equity plus the value shoots up. It's like, oh, okay, this is an opportunity here. <laughs> so you fade, you fade back and you decide, you decide you're going to do this. Um, do you, has it, was it a, were you planting the seeds and then you did it? Or did you just one day sit down with your wife and say, Hey, look, I, I think I have a plan. I think this is what I want to do. Like, how did that go? I would have stayed on at my old job longer. My, Ooh. my wife was like, okay, you need to, you need to leave Sam Moran and just focus on design the everything. Cause I mean, it was taking nice. all of my time. Nice. Um, I have, okay. I have three kids, you know, I have a house to maintain. And at the time I was working, you know, 40 hours a week at, at that job, which also was 45 minutes commuting either direction. So basically, <sighs> you know, 10 hours at, at day job, plus trying to do design the everything. And my wife was like, I, I could use some more help around the house. If you could, uh, you know, it would be nice. Job. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. I don't know, I would have liked to wait an extra six months or so, but honestly, I don't know. I don't know how I could have done the carabiner Kickstarter while still working that other job. So Do you, it was, you know, right I, w- I wonder, I, I know how I am. Okay. So I know how I am. And what you just said there is something I would have said. Oh, I would have preferred to have waited another six months. But you know what would have happened after six months? If you're anything like me, you probably would have waited another six months. And then it would have just been two years down the road and you would have been like, man, I should have done it when I wanted to do it initially. <laughs> I don't know. If that's Maybe I'm projecting, but that's how I would handle it. Like I would save that something like that, but then it would never be just six months. It would be like, oh, you know, a little while longer. <laughs> I... All of the big steps the design, the everything have made have come from taking a bigger risk. Mm-hmm. Um, like for the first time, the design, the everything really became cash flow positive was when I bought my uh, Pocket NC CNC machine, mm-hmm. which is a little desktop machine I had a couple years ago and made branding irons with it. And that was a great little machine, but it was, I don't know, five or $6,000 that I didn't have. And yeah. I, I ended up buying it on PayPal six-month financing. Um, and that was a great decision because sure. I was able to pay that thing back in, I don't know, like three months just by making branding irons on it. Totally. Um, but then I had a machine that was actually, you know, reliable and that I could make money on. And, you know, when you have even just, you know, 100 or $200 coming in a week, like that's money to buy tools and materials and that's your cash flow for your entire business until things yeah. start moving with other stuff. So yeah, no, totally. That makes perfect sense. I had the same thing with my Glowforge. I bought it. I bought it. I had it on, um, what was the fine? A firm. I put it on a firm. It was, um, I don't remember if it was two, three or four years. I don't even remember what I took. I just took whatever I was able to get from them. And I was like, okay, that's my monthly payment. I bought it in December of 2018 and I paid it off in April of 2019 like paid it wow. off. Like it was like, like, you know, and I, you think about that and you're like, okay, that, that was, you know, when I bought it, it was a 40, it was $4,800 investment. You know, $4,800 when you barely have a business. I mean, I was literally just really getting started. I hadn't even made my first cutting board yet. And in fact, yeah. the first cutting board I made in my shop didn't get my logo on it from the Glowforge. I actually 
stamped it on there and sent it out. Like that was my first, my, the first board to go out of the shop. It wasn't until much later where I was like, I should start putting my boards in here and personalizing them, you know, and start using this even more. Like I was just doing small things with like acrylic and thin wood. So it was crazy to spend that money on that to begin with. But then things ramped real quick. It was like, oh no, I can make a lot of money with this very quickly if I just start using it for everything. It's like the next thing I knew, I had a business that involved it in almost every step. So yeah, it's it's funny. The story, it's a different machine, but it's the same story. You know, you yep. use it like, oh, the money's coming in. You put some aside to pay for the machine. Everything else for that month is profit. And then you have a couple of good months. And the next thing you know, it's like, I can pay that off. I can pay that off. It's kind of crazy to even think you can pay it off is crazy. So it it's one of the big differences that I see between people trying to start a woodworking business and people trying to start a machining business. Mm-hmm. In the machining world, everything is so expensive. Right. You know, uh, this machine, everything said and done from Tormach was about thirty thousand dollars, but there's an extra probably ten thousand dollars in just the tooling to get it running. Sure. Um, fixture plates, vices, the actual end mills, the tool holders. And like when you're in the machining world, you just, you write off a lot of money to stuff like that. Like, okay, I just have to spend money to be able to make these parts. And like, you just, okay. Like you you accept that in the woodworking world. There's a, like the equipment is a lot more common. It's easier to get used. It's easier to get cheaper versions of the equipment, like a, a cheap table saw it's still a pretty decent table saw. Um, sure. Even my table and, saw is pretty cheap. It's like a $500 table saw. Yeah. You know, by the standards of what some people have in their shop with their $4,000 saw stops. I don't have that. So, yeah, no, you're right. It is a lot different. And, and there is a lot more used equipment. And there are a lot of alternatives. Like, there's not a lot of alternatives to a mill. You know, there are a lot of alternatives. You could make do. It would be hard. But you can make do without a table saw. I did for the first couple of months I was doing woodworking. I didn't have a table saw. I was just using a miter saw and a circular saw. And and I just think that makes, I think that makes woodworkers a little more hesitant to invest back in their business because they feel like they can trade their time for not having a, uh, a better piece of equipment when really like you're never going to grow unless you are putting more of the time into the equipment and less of the time in you doing the work, if that makes sense. You now, are yeah, because the, the bottle. Yeah, you hit the wall. Not your equipment. Yeah. You totally hit the wall at some point, right? Where your where your growth outpaces your ability to produce to match the growth, and that's what made me get a CNC. Now, I'll readily admit, I'll readily admit that I haven't integrated even now, as much as I love my Shape Oco, haven't integrated it at the level I should be integrating it into my business. Um, and it's, it's my own failing. It's something I'm going to improve next year. Now that things have settled a little bit, I know I can spend some time, you know, once the holiday rush is over, my focus is going to be CNC producible products that I can batch a lot of out and have them as inventory items on my shop. But there have been times where it's like, you know, if I could just make one big blank and then have the CNC just cut out and juice groove four cutting boards for me, all the same size, you know, standard size stuff. But if I can have the machine do that for me, it would save me hours of work, just hours of work. Just put it on, let it go, flatten the board, you know, cut the shape, put a juice groove in it. And 
you're right. Woodworkers generally don't have that mindset because, and I'm just going to, you know, and this is not a knock on a lot of them, but I think something that I've noticed, a lot of them just don't care about how long it takes to get something done. Like, and to me, I mean, that, that mindset to me is alien, even though now I have more time in my shop. It's like, I need my shop time to be productive. Like I can't, I don't want to be in the shop for six hours sanding. You know, that's a waste of my time. I want to be, I want to put the stuff together. I want to put the finishing touches. I want to spend the time after everything's done, making it really nice rather than just bringing it into the world. So yeah, I think you're, I think you're onto something there. Woodworkers are not good about their time because they're not, they're not seeing the value of trading time for dollars. Wow. Now, the interesting other side of that coin is I think machinists tend to lean more heavily on the equipment. Mm-hmm. So like if a if you told a machinist, okay, you need to make 50% more money this month or whatever, they're going to go, okay, what equipment do I need to buy to make that happen? And they're not necessarily going to go, okay, how can I make a better product? Or right. you know, how can I focus on marketing? So they're, I don't know, two sides of the same coin. That's interesting. That's interesting. Because yeah, if you told me I needed to make 50% more money, I don't think I'd be looking to upgrade my tools. Yeah. I, I don't think it would be my first my first thought. My first thought would be, okay, what product can I introduce that's going to bring in more money? Like, where am I going to make that extra profit? What can I do with the, the scrap wood that's sitting in my shop? Like, can I make something, can I make a few things with that that would turn unused scrap into something? Like, hmm. But a machinist would be like, mm, I need to produce this faster. Okay, what machine needs an upgrade yeah. to produce these faster? I could just get quantity, 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 quantity. Yep. Yeah, or I'll need, huh. I need a second machine to be able to make that happen. And like, well, <laughs> a second machine. Ways. <laughs> a second machine. It's always, it's funny. There's very few problems that a second machine can't solve, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, so, I, I need a second machine. But You think so? Really? Yes. Is that, is, well, that, is that you just being facetious a little bit? Or is it something where you've given it some thought? I Okay, I now that I'm sitting back and thinking about why I think I need this. Part of this does go back to back when I was thinking that I was going to be doing the production myself. Mhm. Um now that I'm examining my thinking because I was thinking that I need one machine to prototype on while one machine was in production. Fair so enough. maybe that's not maybe that's not as true anymore. Okay. Well, maybe you could go with a smaller machine just for, you know, a second machine, something a little less ridiculous for, <laughs> for the net, for the first machine. Um, no, I think it's, I think, I think your mindset, I think your mindset is great. You really do have a, a business first mindset, which is rare in our space. Our space is very big on, you know, the art of making something and, you know, making something for the joy of it. And it's weird to bump into somebody who, you know, they look at something, they go, yeah, do I need a business angle for this though? Like it's fun to do this stuff, but if there's no business benefit, then I'll lose interest in it. Like, is that, am I categorizing you? I don't want to miscategorize the way you think, but I know that's how I think. Like it's, it's fun to do stuff, but if it's not something that I could turn into a product I could sell, I kind of lose interest very quickly. Like it's just something cool that I did. Is that you also, or? So it's kind of interesting that you view me that way because I think in other circles, I'm probably more product focused than business focused. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the, it's just kind of a matter of context. And yes, in the maker world, I probably am more business focused than the majority of people, but in the kind of more, you know, businessy entrepreneur circles that I'm 
you know, a part of. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely more more product focused. Fair so enough. I guess context matters. The multiple the multiple hats thing, right? Everybody wears yeah. multiple hats. Those are your two hats, <laughs> depending on which circle you're in. You're a different color hat. <laughs> what um, are there any skills that you feel you should learn or you want to learn? that are going to take your business and your product development to the next level. Like I I was really enjoying when you were exploring the differences between powder coating and seracoding because seracoding, you know, is something that was always interesting to me, but I just didn't realize how complex it was. And powder coating is something I've always wanted to do, but the, you know, the equipment investment and the process, it just is like, man, I need, I need powder coating for dummies. Like I need someone to just, Take my hand and say, okay, stupid, here's how you do this. This is step one. This is step two. And I was really enjoying you explaining. You did one video that was, oh my God, it was probably like a half hour long, but it was you just really deep diving the difference between the two, what makes up the the dust versus the pellets and the process of curing it and the results and how difficult it is to achieve a good finish with one versus the other. It was, I think I actually comment on it. It was one of the most fascinating videos I've ever watched. And it was such a nitty gritty niche thing but i loved every second of it is there anything like powder coating seracoding is there anything like that where you feel like if you get this down it's going to help you take things to the next level it so i'm going to go slightly different than i think you're expecting here the yes there is a skill that i am desperately missing that i very much need to improve on and it'll help me a huge amount Okay. Um, but I don't think it's in the the manufacturing side. Honestly, right now it's time management and, and scheduling really? myself. Okay. Um, that was something that I thought I was good at until mm-hmm. I left my day job and my schedule behind, and it was all all up to me. Hmm. It's very easy for me to like look around, see something, and go, "Oh, I'm going to do that," mm-hmm. and which is fun because I do a lot of things that are obvious and in front of me and probably do the things that are fun, but I am not good at one focusing on doing the longer term things, like the things that are farther off. I'm not good at prioritizing those Mm -hmm. and I'm not as good at the, just like the less physical things. Like when the carabiner, when I was doing the carabiner production, the carabiners were right there in front of me. And so I look at them and go, okay, I need to machine carabiners. That's really obvious and clear. And this is the thing that I need to do. Right. But while I was doing that, you know, I'm ignoring social media and I'm ignoring future product development. I ignored the prototype of the month because you know, it was less physical. It wasn't right there in my face going, hey, you need to work on me. Mm. And I, I need to schedule in time to, you know, I, I need to schedule in time to make a schedule. I need to schedule in time to think about, you know, what I need to do for a project a month down the road or two months down the road. I need to schedule in the time to just, prototype and play with new designs. Uh, I need to schedule in time to learn new things. And I haven't been. Do you find, did you find that the the pressure to do that mostly came when there was a little more pressure on the business to make money as opposed to just you being your own boss and, you know, having to kind of figure things out because I imagine that, you know, in something that doesn't generate an immediate financial return, would probably at least subconsciously dictate what you focus your time and energy on. Is that, do you think that's what it is or do you think it's something else? Oh yeah, absolutely. 
Okay. Um, like I mentioned earlier, there's kind of a, a, a tempo that this business has to maintain in order for mm. me to um, make enough money. And and I have to be able to to keep up with that. Sure. I have to be able to get, you know, the next thing done and then the next thing and the next thing. And things that aren't the next thing become uh, rather difficult for me to focus on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm finding that I'm finding that now because at least temporarily I'm self-employed. I had a friend. I had a friend. I called myself unemployed the other day, and he's like, "You're not unemployed. You're self-employed." <laughs> I'm like, "All right, fair enough. I'll go with that. That that's that's good. I'll go with I'll go with self-employed." And I'm finding that, you know, if something isn't an immediate financial thing for me, what I'm finding is that it gets kicked into the background. Like, in fact, perfect yeah. example, this podcast. Um, last night, anyone who's a paid subscriber got the got episode six. Six, seven, episode seven. They got it late last night. Normally you get, they would get it at like 10 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, mm-hmm. but they got it like 1030 last night because it was like, it just kept getting kicked forward, kicked forward, kicked forward. And it's like, dude, you got to edit the podcast at some point, bro. You got to get this out to your paid people tonight. And, but it just got kicked down the road because it wasn't as immediate as the cutting boards and the packaging for those that I had to get for a client that I had just finished that I had to kind of so yeah i i'm totally in the same boat and i think i'm kind of good at it also until i'm not good at it and you realize like oh everything just spiraled the hell out of control hold on take a pause rein it all back in let's go let's just breathe a little bit okay what's what fires do we need to put out first (laughs) yeah but the other thing that's really easy to do is you know go okay this is a weird time you know I'm having problems because this time is weird. But if mm-hmm. I wait a week, the next, you know, then I'll have all the time in the world. But that <laughs> next week, all the time in the world never comes. It's always, it's always <laughs> a weird time where you're, you know, surprisingly busy. No, you're just like, it's just life and you need to kind of take it's control all, at some point. It's always a weird time. That's actually, that's actually good advice. It's, it's never going to be, the time's never going to be better. There's always going to be some reason why the time isn't good. I thought, I actually thought the time was good to start a business in 2018. And then I found out I had cancer and that put me on the shelf for six months. You know, like you think you have, and by the way, that's not a what was me thing. My business took off right after I got out of surgery. So believe me, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is I thought it would be a good time. Like, and I kept pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. And then the next thing I know, I was like, Oh, you're on the shelf for a little while now, buddy. So, um, yeah. And you're not allowed in your shop because you may bleed obsessively all over the place. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. You can't go near spinning sharp objects until you're, uh, you have some platelets in you. So yeah, weird things happen. Just, I guess, I guess then the mindset should be that the best time to do the thing you need to do is now just do the thing, whatever the thing is, just yep. do the thing. That's actually, that's good life advice too. Just do the thing. <laughs> um, why don't we switch over to, uh, speaking of things, let's switch over to <laughs> thing of the week. Cause I'm very curious to know what the great AJ Huff has as his thing of the week for this week. So if anybody has been watching my Instagram stories, this is not going to surprise you in the slightest, <laughs> but, and this is like my thing of the month, maybe thing of the year. Ooh. It is the grid. It's a system. It's the gridfinity system. Those things are, it's so cool. All right, good choice. Good choice. So there was a guy, I, I wish I knew his name. I don't know if I'm right. He came up with, 
Um, it was actually not him. It wasn't him. Okay. Yeah. So, so, um, some guy, I don't remember his name. He's, his videos are kind of annoying. Um, but he came up with this gridfinity system that I believe actually was based on the, the Alex Chappelle system. Um, it, at least kind of in spirit, but this guy did it all open. Zach source. Friedman, by the way, by the way, Zach came Friedman, up with Friedman, it. I had to think of it yeah. cause I could see his face as yeah. we were talking about it, but yeah. So he, he came up with this gridfinity system, which basically just a grid that sits in the bottom of your drawer or your drawers. And then there are matching bins that go on top of it that, that nest night, yeah, that nest neatly into that, that grid. And there's all kinds of different bins that you can put in it. So you can have one for screws. You can have one for your screwdrivers, you know, wrenches. Uh, you know, I have some for my uh, CNC specific tools and they just sit in your drawer. They keep everything nice and neat. You can take them out if you need to. You can put them back in. And when you open, you close your drawers, they don't move around on you. Yep. And I have printed hundreds of these bins over the last uh, <laughs> you know month or so here. And, you know, laser cut a bunch of the bases and designed probably a half a dozen custom bins. And I'm the most organized that I've been ever, maybe. It's it's a genius level system. The idea of having basically a rail system in the bottom of the drawer and then a box that has grooves to sit on those rails. It's like, why didn't anyone think of this? Like, it's so brilliant. So, yeah, that's it's. So I had seen, I saw Alex Chappelle's video, the original one where he and where he came up with the idea for this. And then I remember Zach Friedman coming along later on and going, okay, we're going to open source the hell out of this now. Cause you know, Alex is charging for it. So here's, here's that, my solution. And that open source aspect is what made the difference mm -hmm. because there are just thousands and thousands of designs and yeah. you know, maybe one in 10 are useful to you but there's so many to choose from. Right. They're all useful to somebody though, which is kind of cool. Like yeah. I was just scrolling through the, cata the catalog here and they have a can holder and I'm thinking like, yes. who's going to use a can holder? But then I was like, well, no, actually that kind of makes sense. Like you just put a bunch of them in a drawer and all of a sudden your cans don't tip over when you open the drawer. Like, yeah, it's a really cool system. That's a, that's a good one. That's a very good one. Um, you can find it at gridfinity.xyz. That is the, um, the website for it. It's, yeah, and if you if you have a second, maybe I'll maybe I'll try to find the video where he introduced it. But oh no, look at that! He puts it, he put it on the front page. Um, Zach has the video for the introduction of it as an open source project on the homepage, so you can watch. You can see how people are using it. It's a really cool part. That's a good one, man. And I you know I should have known you would like something like that because that is a very that is a very you type thing. It's a beautiful product. It's well designed. So and it's modular. It's and it is modular. It is modular. This is a good one. Can't even argue. Uh, Gridfinity.xyz. I'm going to do my thing of the week this week is not going to surprise anyone. It's only going to surprise people who listen to Because We Make because this is literally the second time it's going to be a thing of the week for me, but it just has to be. Um, I was in my shop uh, a couple of weekends ago making cutting boards for a customer, and I was on the last part of the of an engrave for on the last cutting board. You know, the part where you're finally in the home stretch and you can go home at seven o'clock. And it's like, oh my God, I'm finally done. I'm finally done. I'm finally done. And my Glowforge just stops responding. Like it won't do the last, it won't do the last engrave. And I'm like, I couldn't figure it out. Spent 45 minutes trying to troubleshoot. And I ended up figuring out 
that for some reason, the data cable that goes to the head of the Glowforge had worked itself loose. Like it came out of the clip. I have no idea how this happened, by the way. I didn't bump it. You can't touch it accidentally. It's in a track. But somehow it had just worked itself out. And what's funny is I figured it out just by the way the machine sounded. I could tell that the air assist fan was not coming on. And it's like, okay, something's going on in the head of the machine. Okay, cool. Let's figure it out. And I took the head on and off the track multiple times, not realizing that I never unplugged the cable to take it off or plugged the cable back in to turn it on. Anyway, I ended up figuring it out. And the Glowforge is cleaner than it's been in a very long time. I cleaned all the lasers. I cleaned the fan. I cleaned everything. I cleaned the contacts. It's all working great. But uh, the reason that the Glowforge is going to be my thing of the week is because the, the sheer panic of me not having that machine available to me was just overwhelming in the moment. And I realized how much that machine has actually not only changed the way I do business, but become an integral part of my business. And if this thing ever died, I don't know that I would buy another Glowforge, but I would absolutely have to immediately purchase some other laser, like some other laser. You know, I know I know a company that makes really good lasers that I recommended to a friend of mine who seems pretty happy with his. So um uh, yeah, I would definitely replace it with another laser, but for now, for now, because of what it's meant to me and my business and what I'm able to produce for my customers, my Glowforge is absolutely my thing of the week. Um, it's probably been my thing of the last four years. And in fact, December 24th of 2022 will be its four year anniversary. I got it December 24th of 19 of 1998 of, t- of 2018, <laughs> 1998. I got it 20 years before it came out. So yeah, Glowforge, thing of the week. Not for everybody, not the most powerful laser, but game changer for me in a way that nothing else has ever changed the game for me in my shop. So um, yeah, that's that's my uh, that's my thing of the week. You know what else changes the game for me, though? The people that support this show financially. And those people include Matthew Serio from Artigiano Serio, Al Schultz from New York Woodworks, Tori Decker of Tori Did It, Ed Swanson of Ed's Clocks and More, Jake Drews of Make with Jake, Megan Chris from Onyx Designs Woodwork, Christian Neary of Warren Works, Jeff Stein, aka a weird guy, Kim and Garrett from Kim and Garrett Make It, Rory Langefeld of RLL Woodworks and DIY, Robert J. Keller, Rebecca Cole from Bexie Designs, Brian Arsenault of Seven Hills Maker, Lars Coleman of Colorado Multicraft, Dave Bauer of Dave Bauer Art, Jeremy Spies, Mike of Pixels to Prototypes, and Donald LeBlanc of Fun with Woodworking. A great deal of thanks go out to those people who support the show financially. If you can't support the show financially, that's fine too. Please share the show. Let other, let other people know about it. Um, write a review if you're able because those kinds of things help people discover the show. And that's as good as financial support in my book. Although right now, the financial support helps a lot and I really, really appreciate that. So thank you very much for that. AJ, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to chat with you. I'm sorry we didn't get you on because we make, but you know, this this seems to be I think the new version of this show seems to fit you a little better than just being on a show about makers. So uh seeing as you're a you're a digitally creative person now. <laughs> uh, well, I had a blast. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great. Um now there's something that some people don't know about, but you actually have, aside from all your other socials, you actually have a podcast. So why don't you tell us all about your podcast and where people can find you online if they want to check out what you're up to. I do have a podcast. It is called Taps and Patience. We're about, I think, 13 or 14 episodes in at this point. It is me talking with a friend of mine named Harrison. He has a 
his own manufacturing company. He's a little bit more focused on the production side of the work where I'm focused on the the product side. Perfect. And we just talk about life, business, machining. Um, it's not a, a structured podcast, really. We just have, it's two friends having a conversation. So Great. if you want to come hang out with us for an hour, uh, you can find us Taps and Patience anywhere podcasts are. Great. I will have a link to that in the show notes with the rest of AJ's links. And where on all the various socials and websites and all that stuff can people find you? So I'm probably most interesting on YouTube at Design the Everything and also on Instagram at Design the Everything. I mostly do Instagram stories. So if you like Mm -hmm. daily stories, Instagram. If you like occasional longer form videos, then YouTube. Yeah, the YouTube the YouTube stuff, I got to be honest with you. What the stuff you're doing on YouTube, I really enjoy watching it. Like it's a grab a cup of coffee, sit down and watch AJ for 20 minutes, just watch him go through a process, talk about a pro- talk about something business related. I think you then I like the mix of things that you have on your YouTube channel. Like you did the video you dropped this weekend, you talked a lot about your fixturing process and all that stuff. It's it's just I've learned so much watching you. And it's not that I'm ever going to do the stuff you're doing, but I still feel like I'm getting like an education in how things are made and how things work. And I really appreciate that. And the YouTube content's been top notch. So good job on that. I hope you keep that going. So, And you want an exclusive announcement for you guys? Ooh, exclusive announcement. Okay. Yeah. So, exclusive announcement. Here we go. And, okay. I've probably announced this other places too, but. Um, Fair enough. Semi-exclusive. So I'll take it. I, I was listening to your podcast the other day and you were talking about struggling getting into fusion. Mm-hmm. Um, I had way back when my, my YouTube channel started off as fusion tutorials before I shifted it to being about the business of design, the everything. Mm-hmm. Well, upon listening to that, I was like, okay, I need to start up my fusion tutorials again. So I now have a second YouTube channel It's called five minute fusion where it, it's just getting started, but I, I'm starting to make some fusion tutorials. Great. My plan is to do, is to basically go through every button in fusion. Um, okay. So I did one on like the extrude button. I did one on the revolve button and I'm just going to, I'm going to go all the way through the buttons. So it'll be like a nice little reference for you, like a dictionary of how to use the buttons. That's fantastic because when I need help with something in Fusion, that's normally what I end up doing. Like I know that I need to use a function, but I need to know what all the parameters in the in the pop-up window tell you, you know, what they're for. Like, why would you do something to object instead of to extent instead? Like, this is exactly the kind of information that may not change your world, but it might make you more efficient, which is exactly what people need. I think that's great because when people search for stuff on Fusion, you're going to be what you're going to give them what they're searching for. Like how extrude function options. Boom. Here it is. That's a great, I love this idea. I think everyone should learn how to use fusion. I think fusion is just fantastic piece of software. It's not perfect. And as Corey has said many times, the way it handles triangles is absolutely enraging. And I completely agree, but for the most part, it is an absolutely fantastic piece of software. So that's great. Five minute fusion. Um, I'll find it. I'll find it on the YouTubes okay. and we'll uh, we'll have a link for that also. Man, you're doing so much. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. I feel like I feel like a sloth now. I feel like I need to finish this up and go do something just to be productive for today. So <laughs> Yeah, it helps when you have a video editor working for you. <laughs> <laughs> it does help. That does help. Maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe I need to hide. You know what I figured out? <laughs> Would you like and to you guys, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> you guys briefly talked about it on Makeshift. I think what I need isn't so much someone to edit the videos. It's someone to run camera. Mm -hmm. If I had another person that I could bring in 
I could do every project I do on camera, like every single one in my life. But the idea of constantly stopping to move the camera and set up the camera and put the, it just, I, I it's not going to work. Like I'm never going to get anything done. It's yeah. I'm going to, or I'm going to add days to my processes. So if I had someone that could, you know, come to my shop in, in, in um, Rockland County and run camera for me, you know, granted it's, there's no money in it, but you'd have to do it because you love it. <laughs> At least now anyway. But yeah, that would make my life so much easier. I don't need the editor. I need the camera guy. <laughs> so, I think Dave Picciuto has that figured out. Like yep. he has the, um, he, always, he always has someone running camera and it's like he could just do what he wants and trust that they're going to get the shot. So um, cool beans, AJ. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, yep. I'm really looking forward to seeing what the next Kickstarter is. I'm, I love your stuff. I have your last three products. I have them all. I have the orange slice. I have the orange slice keychain. I have the not for climbing carabiner, the prototype and the regular version. And I have one of your trays and they're all just for the record. They're all in purple because AJ loves me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thanks for joining me. Thank you to you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. I'll be back again next week with another guest. And I look forward to chatting with you then have a great week, everybody. 